You're listening to the WORT Local News Podcast. I'm Sholly Pittman, News Director here at WORT. And I have a quick ask for you before we start the show today. We're in the midst of our summer pledge drive, and while we love bringing you the most local breaking stories, it costs money, even this podcast. If you have a little change in your pocket, maybe spend a little change on this show. Go to wortfm.org and click on donate. And thank you. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. A retired judge was shot and killed in what the Department of Justice is calling a targeted act, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Retired Judge John Romer was shot in his home in Juneau County on Friday morning by a man Romer had previously sentenced for armed robbery. Investigators say that the man had a list of other government officials he had planned to target, including Governor Tony Evers and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The State Department of Justice is still investigating the incident. Republican candidate for governor Tim Michaels had a weekend of ups and downs. On Friday, Michaels was endorsed by former President Donald Trump, who said in a statement that Michaels was the best person for the job of Wisconsin governor. Trump pointed to Michaels' role helping to construct the Keystone Pipeline. Then, on Saturday, Wisconsin Democrats filed a challenge with the Wisconsin Elections Commission, arguing that Michaels did not properly list his address when collecting nomination signatures. The Democratic Party of Wisconsin argue that, due to this error, over 3,500 of Michaels' collected signatures are invalid, leaving him short of the 2,000 signatures needed to get on the ballot. That's according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The Wisconsin's Election Commission will meet this Friday to decide if Michaels will appear on the ballot this August. State Attorney General Josh Call issued an opinion last week saying that UW Health is free to voluntarily recognize and bargain with a union, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. The opinion is another win for UW Health nurses who have been fighting for a union since 2019. The hospital argues that Act 10 prevents them from bargaining with any union, stating that Act 10 puts heavy restrictions on bargaining rights of state and local government employees. Call says, however, that UW Health employees are not considered state or local government employees. This means they are free to bargain with a nurses' union. Call's opinion reaffirms opinions already given by the nonpartisan Legislative Council, who also said that UW Health is legally able to recognize a union. The Capital Times reports that the Madison Metro School District has unenrolled around 700 students from summer school this year due to staffing shortages. District spokesperson Tim Lamond says the district would need around 100 additional staff in order to properly accommodate the extra 700 students. Lamonts did not say how they chose which students to unenroll. Michael Jones, president of Madison Teachers, Inc., blames the staff shortage on low pay for teachers. Last year, the district offered teachers $40 an hour to teach summer school courses. This year, the district is only offering $28 an hour. 
The city of Madison has been forced once again to close the building that holds the restaurant Paisons at 131 West Wilson Street. The building was originally closed in September of last year after people working in the building claimed to feel the building move beneath them. After an investigation, the city found structural concerns in the parking garage below the building and shut it down. After closing and reopening several times, city staff informed the building owner in late May that they had not received safety reports, which were required by the city in order to the in order for the building to reopen. After not receiving those reports, the city closed the building again today. The building owner has requested to demolish the building in order to build a new apartment complex. The city will consider that request on June 27th. And those are today's headlines. The Dane County Board has ordered an independent investigation into allegations of racism and harm to animals, among other actions, at the Henry Vilas Zoo. The move comes after reporting from the Wisconsin State Journal found that the zoo's only two black zookeepers quit, citing mistreatment by management as their reason. WORT reporter Reed Kamai has more. Last Thursday, the Dane County Board of Supervisors voted to establish an independent investigation into the management at the Henry Vilas Zoo. The free zoo has come under fire for allegations of racism, unfair treatment, and retaliation towards employees, along with mistreatment and neglect of animals. Prior to the Wisconsin State Journal's editorial calling for an investigation, the paper had reported that its only two black zookeepers left the zoo in the wake of the deaths of five penguins housed at the zoo. The independent investigator is to be named by board chair Patrick Miles and will be a former circuit court judge. Tim Kiefer was among 26 supervisors to vote in favor of the investigation. At the board meeting last Thursday, Kiefer cited his nieces and nephews' interest in the zoo as a reason to pursue this investigation. I hope they're going to want to go back to the zoo. I expect they will want to go back to the zoo. And that's concerning to me because I don't want, as their uncle, to take them to a zoo where potentially the animals at the zoo are being mistreated. I don't want to take them to a zoo where the people who work at the zoo are potentially being mistreated. Kiefer reiterated to me the importance of having someone outside of Dane County leading the investigation. I, again, have no preconceived ideas of what this investigation is or is not going to turn up. I simply want someone who is impartial, who is unbiased, who will come into this without any connection to, to county government, um, to, to look at this situation, listen to what everyone has to say, do the research, issue a report, and then we'll go from there. A separate investigation by two Dane County officials, Kabura Mukasa and Carrie Braxton, is in progress. Shannon Meyer, the employee advocate manager for Dane County, cited this in her opposition to the resolution. What would you expect differently from a third-party investigator? They would be tasked with doing what Kabura and Kerry have already done, interview staff and then make recommendations. If the outcome is the same, what would, would we not have wasted $50,000 of taxpayer dollars? I also believe that most zoo employees don't necessarily want to have the process start over and go through additional interviews. They would like to move forward to work together to create a favorable work environment. Meyer also felt that the relative timing of the two investigations could undermine the findings of the county's work. Well, I mean, they didn't, there was never an opportunity for their plan to be implemented. I mean, the, 
the um, the complaint came in, the investigation was started, the interviews were done, um, and then it um, kind of went public, and that's when um, the independent investigation was requested, but that without giving um, the plan that um, or the recommendations that were in place um, or recommended by the Office of Equity and Inclusion and Employee Relations, even an opportunity. They were just developing the plan. With the resolution having passed, it goes to County Executive Joe Parisi for signature. Parisi, however, expressed concerns about the transparency of the investigation due to the use of a retired judge, comparing it to the work of retired state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman's investigation into the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin. The deadline for the investigator to release their findings is October 1st. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. The time is now 6.16 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. For two months during spring Wisconsin, birders from across the state flock together to participate in the Great Wisconsin Birdathon. Teams participate in walkathon style events, but instead of logging miles, they log birds. WORT reporter Katherine Garvins brings us the story of one such team and the cause they help support. It's early on a cold but sunny morning in late May, and I'm driving a twisty bit of country road along the edge of the driftless region. The mist sits low in the valleys, creating infinite shades of blue and green as the sun warms the earth and the dew rises. It's a beautiful morning to rally with my friends at Gathering Waters for our day of birding for the Great Wisconsin Birdathon. Our hosts are Doug Stege and Chris Euclid, owners of a diverse chunk of property along the border of Iowa and Dane counties. Here's Doug. Well, our property uh, is about 185 acres that we acquired the bulk of it about 45 years ago now. And we knew that it had some prairie remnants on it that uh, we were real excited about, knew a little bit about prairies. And through the years, we've done more management on the property and in 2006 we uh, granted a conservation easement, a perpetual conservation easement to the prairie enthusiast. A perpetual conservation easement is a legal agreement in which a landowner transfers some rights associated with ownership of a property to an easement holder. In this case, the prairie enthusiasts, or TPE for short. The land comprises limestone ridges, rocky and tall glass prairie, and oak savanna, all of which provide safe harbor for a wide variety of birds, other animals, and plants, including some rare species. Here's Chris. Number of endangered and threatened species on property that, again, the the prairie enthusiast um, staff have helped us identify, and that's always been good to know that there are these. I mean, there's a lot of things we think are special, but it's really great when you know that there are things that are kind of unique and need special protection or whatever. So that that's always fun. Doug and Chris often welcome groups such as ours to their property, now known as the West Dane Conservancy. Here's Doug again. We enjoy having various groups in mm-hmm. if they like to look at plants or to look at birds or to look at the snakes and turtles mm-hmm. <laughs> there on the property. <laughs> and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's especially fun when kids come and uh, they enjoy running around and, and uh, seeing all the plants and animals too. So it's a, it's a very rewarding thing to be site stewards for the property. On this particular morning, no one is necessarily doing a lot of running around. 
I've been invited to join friends from Gathering Waters as they spend the morning, binoculars in hand, to log their own sightings for the Great Wisconsin Birdathon. Mike Carlson is executive director of Gathering Waters, Wisconsin's Alliance for Land Trust. He says the Birdathon effort aligns well with the mission of the organization he leads. We really exist to strengthen Wisconsin's nonprofit land trust organization. So here in Wisconsin, we have just over 40 independent nonprofit land trusts. And we say the term land trust, we essentially mean a, a nonprofit organization that primarily exists to uh, protect land for things like wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, water quality, and other conservation priorities. Um, at Gathering Waters, we have kind of three main focus areas. So we do public policy advocacy, especially on advocating for state funding for conservation. Uh, we do t- uh, training and technical assistance for our land trust members, really trying to help ensure that they're sustainable, well-run nonprofits. And we do communications and outreach. Participating in the Wisconsin Birdathon brings together multiple parts of the Gathering Waters mission. And the Birdathon is just a really nice way to promote bird conservation and to promote just great partnerships among conservation organizations around the state. And this land is special. You know, spectacular piece of property, just a really neat mix of habitat. I think, again, this is our third or fourth year coming out here for bird watching through the Birdathon. And uh, we just, we love it. Of course, they have a great team name. The Gathering Warblers is our official birdathon name. The Gathering Warblers are just one of dozens of teams formed throughout the state, citizen explorers who contribute their efforts towards the Great Wisconsin Birdathon each year. Caitlin Schuchart is outreach coordinator for the Natural Resources Foundation of Wisconsin, which sponsors the annual birdathon. We are a local um, Madison-based nonprofit that supports statewide work, um, connecting generations of people to the wonders of Wisconsin's land, waters, and wildlife. She says the Great Wisconsin Birdathon is Wisconsin's largest fundraiser for bird conservation, having raised half a million dollars since its debut a decade ago. This fund does everything from protecting endangered species, like whooping cranes, Kirtland warblers, and piping plovers, to protecting bird habitat in neighborhoods and important bird areas across the state and around the world. Like the Neotropical Flyways Project, where they're, we're supporting critical migratory stopover regions in Central and South America, because we know that Wisconsin's birds don't spend their entire time here in Wisconsin. We need to support them um, on their migratory journey as well. Birdathon teams are formed across the state, and teams return year after year. They often choose punny team names that play off of different bird names, like the double-stuffed Orioles or Three Shrikes and You're Out. And they use all kinds of ways to get around. The River Raptors, uh, which is a really fun team um, that's been birding with us for a decade now. Um, and they take to the water um, every season. They have, you know, they are birding with paddles in hand um, as they are um, exploring uh, Wisconsin streams and rivers um, and kayaking while they bird. We have the Pedaling Paddling Prius Peewees, which is one of another one of our green birding teams um, that really likes to focus on seeing birds by foot, seeing birds by bike um, as they explore areas on Madison's north side. Many land trusts across the state also form teams that participate in Birdathon, and nonprofit organizations that participate are eligible to keep half the funds they raise for their own organization. Um, we have an incredible crew of land trusts that participate in the Birdathon, um, and they get to set out and explore 
um, these beautiful properties that their land trust to help protect. As for our friends, the gathering warblers, they logged a willow flycatcher, blue-winged warbler, wood thrush, warbling vireo, rose-breasted grosbeak, just to name a few. Here's Mike. We saw 60 species of birds today, uh, just a really neat mix. After almost three hours of birding and hiking this stunning property, the birding team from Gathering Waters is enjoying coffee and donuts while reviewing the highlights. This includes sandhill cranes being harassed by very persistent red-winged blackbirds and something no one expected. Awesome. <laughs> when did you ever see that? <laughs> that, was totally awesome. that was so cool. That <laughs> <laughs> was a great sight. Hummingbird. <laughs> if you didn't catch that, that was a hummingbird chasing down a kingfisher, a first for everyone. So you may be wondering, how can I get involved with birding? Matt Reitz is executive director of the Madison Audubon Society, member of the Gathering Warblers team, and... Also the board chair of Gathering Waters. I asked him for some tips to inspire folks new to birding. Birding is for everybody and all levels, and it's meant to be fun and enjoyable, and you can do it right outside your backyard. You can do it in a natural area. And really all you need to do is, you don't even need a pair of binoculars. You just need to spy birds take a peek at what they're doing, listen for them, and enjoy them. He says that there are certainly more technical ways to bird, like marks on wings, the size of the beak, and where the bird is located. There are great apps, too, like Merlin from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, that can help beginners identify birds, even by sound. So everybody who wants to go out and bird, just go out and enjoy it. Do your best to just identify one species, even the easy ones, and just have a good time. Finding a good team helps, too. I know I learned a lot from the Gathering Waters team and from our hosts at the West Dane Conservancy, all for the cause of the Great Wisconsin Birdathon. The Birdathon runs this year through June 15th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Katherine Garvins. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. To learn more about what's happening in local government this week, Forward Lookout's Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan walk us through this week in city and county meetings. This week, new... This week, new Common Council members, a zoo update not pertaining to investigations, and alcohol licenses galore. It's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. Most of these meetings, if not all, are all uh, virtual, so just um, heads up about that. So uh, bright and early, we have the Henry Vilas Zoo Commission, 7.30 on Tuesday. Um, just presenting a report. You have to get up early to attend that one. Yeah, and transparent as always. Um, every single agenda they have basically just says report. Um, mm. So that's all that they ever discuss is reports. Um, and so you have to try to figure out if there's anything in there i don't think a lot of the biggest controversies there's been around the zoo have not been included transparently at all for these agendas yeah do they list um all the investigations that have happened (laughs) and will happen in that report yes that's no 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 no. 
Yeah, interesting debate, this zoo. All right, 5.30, we have the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, and they'll be getting some highway safety grant funding for speed enforcement, so pretty typical. Yep, lots of grants for law enforcement, and then they also have a report about um, what PP&J does, um, so that's the Public oh, yeah. Protection and Judiciary Committee, and what the Criminal Justice Council does. So they're looking at the differences between the two and um, looking at, you know, what, how, what, how their roles differ. They'll also be looking at Dane County's role in interjurisdictional criminal investigations. Um, I don't know if that has to do with the police shootings or if there are some other issues involved that are wrapped up in there. And then they're also looking at the sheriff policies and procedures related to courthouse arrests. It's a sign of a good committee when they eventually wonder what they do. Yeah, right. It, 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 <laughs> right. Co- it comes up more often than you think. But So the other one was the Criminal Justice Council. Would they have a, a pre-trial services subcommittee meeting uh, via Zoom on Wednesday at 1215? The Criminal Justice Council is a little bit different. It's not so much supervisors and citizens, but a lot of people who, like the sheriff's on it, right, and the mass and police chief. Yeah, it's usually the the more higher ups and it's supposed to be more of a communication place where they can come together and coordinate their activities is generally speaking what I've seen it be used for. And they'll be doing that 1215 and you can watch along and uh, tell us about the Parks Commission, which will look like they'll be meeting uh, in person and virtually by Zoom at uh, the Heritage Center on Lake Farm Road. So that's what what's the Park Commission up to? Um, they're looking at the naming of the North Mendota Natural Resource Area. I'm not going to try to say what they're going to name it. Hmm. Um, I couldn't, couldn't pronounce it, I don't believe. Um, and then they're looking at some um, a land specialist p- position, and then they will also be looking, they'll be meeting the new Groundswell Conservancy Executive Director, Angelo Westblank. Let's just go right to the city of Madison. Uh, happening now, uh, it started at 4.30 virtually. It's the Finance Committee. Yep, they are looking at a memorandum of understanding with Journey Mental Health. I'm assuming that's for the CARES team, mm-hmm. um, the crisis response team. And then they are also looking at a couple of TIF districts and extending them for one year. And when they extend it for a year, any money that's made during that time, they have to put into affordable housing. So there's two opportunities there. They're also looking at the youth, young adult, and adult employment policy paper and doing a new RFP Usually those are four-year funding cycles. So if there's new projects, now's the time to be thinking about getting those in. And then they're also going to be extending the contract with Focus Counseling, which is doing the um, services portion of um, for the people in the city hotels. The city hotels were designed to um, get people off the streets, um, not like the COVID hotels or the yeah. um, county hotels. So they're going to be expending, ex- extending that project and maybe having some housing funds available for those folks. Well, let's move on to how about the Landmarks Commission? That's also meeting right now. So they have three different projects they'll be looking at. 826 Williamson Street. They have a land combination that they're going to be doing. So Mm. they're putting two pieces of property together. Um, 121 North Prospect Avenue, and they're doing a rear addition there. And then at 312 Wisconsin Avenue, um, they're looking at an exterior alteration and some installation of signage. What's also happening um, and always of great interest is the Common Council. They're meeting at 6.30 on Tuesday. Uh, No executive committee this week? There was not. I think Hmm. they've been meeting very hard to replace all the elders, and maybe they needed a break. I'm not entirely sure. But there was no meeting in the agenda when I looked this morning. Um, So they will be appointing Bill Tischer and Matt Fair. 
Uh, Bill will be representing District 11, um, which is Arvina Martin that will be that has stepped down, and Matt Fair will be um, representing District 20, and that was Christian Alburis. And he was on the council down. previously. Yes, Matt Fair was a yeah. is a former alder. Yeah, who saved um, a woman during a flood, or yes. a man? I don't know. Which somebody he saved somebody. Yep. And then they also, they still have to fill uh, Lindsay Lemmer's seat, who is also stepping down. So, and uh, and, lots and of looks like Saeed Abbas might be leaving um, soon because oh, yes. he's basically yep. running for an assembly. Not basically, he is in, in the Sun Prairie area, so he's going to have yep. to move no matter what. They're spending lots of time uh, appointing <laughs> um, <laughs> alders who have stepped down, but what, what else is yep. the, ca- the Common Council up to? Oh, it's the alcohol license extravaganza. Oh, um, <laughs> this is the annual renewal of all of the licenses. So I believe they have until June 30th to do it, um, but they are doing the bulk um, renewals. And so in addition to having the new licenses that they typically look at, they're also renewing all of the ones um, that were our renewals. And then they will also be looking at a couple that they had pulled out to look at separately. Yeah, most just get rubber stamped through. It's actually very hard once you give a business a liquor license to take it away. So. They'll also be um, looking at uh, a couple zoning things that it may be of interest to folks, um, including the taking away the protest petition. Um, yeah, and then they are also going to be looking at uh, rainbow mur- murals um, and putting some money towards that. People um, may see those popping up around the city. Um, they're going to go to hybrid meetings starting in July. And then they also have... Metro Network redesign plan. Oh, um, and so that's, that's going to be final huge. Approval. That's a, yep. oh my, uh, I, yeah, exactly. It, it was way down at the bottom, yes. but it is, it's one that's of the last things big. that they'll be doing that night. Um, and so that will be um, important for quite a few folks. Um, they're also going to be taking a look at the truth and reconciliation process for the city of Madison that um, Alder Benford had been working on. We don't have much time left. So what else should we talk about before wrapping it up today? Transportation Commission, Madison Arts Commission, Education Committee, uh, Parks Commission, as well as Gulf Subcommittee and the CDA are also meeting this week. And you can take a look on the blog and, and find out the agendas there since we've taken up so much time chit-chatting. <laughs> That's right. Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. Uh, thank you for providing that resource. And uh, like you said, uh, all this is posted at ForwardLookout.com if you want to see what's happening in Dane County and the city of Madison in terms of government. Thank you, Brenda. And thanks, Dylan. Today, June 6, marks the day in 1966 that civil rights activist James Meredith was shot on his protest march on the way to Jackson, Mississippi. After the shooting, civil rights leaders and regular people took up the challenge to finish the march. Contributor Harry Richardson takes it from here on this edition of The Past Isn't Past. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong Today, June 6, marks the day in 1966 that James Meredith was shot by white supremacist Aubrey Norvell Meredith was on the second day of a 270-mile journey 
through the notorious Mississippi Delta from the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee to the Mississippi State Capitol in Jackson. Despite the long history of racist violence, Meredith marched alone, asking only for individual black men to join him, no civil rights organizations. He had not sought the protection of local police or even the U.S. Justice Department. He was protesting racist treatment of black people and pushing voter registration. Meredith had first come to public attention four years earlier when he had become the first African-American student to integrate the University of Mississippi. He had expected the march to last 22 days. Unable to continue, he was taken to a Memphis hospital to recover from his injuries. Major civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Floyd McKissick, of the Congress of Racial Equality and Stokely Carmichael of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee rose to the challenge and continued the march, this time with the Deacons for Defense and Justice providing armed security. The Deacons was a group of African-American World War II vets formed two years earlier in Louisiana to defend black people from the KKK. They believed in armed self-defense. Other participants included the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, members led by Fannie Lou Hamer, and members of the Medical Committee for Human Rights. The march also gained support from progressive white leaders like UAW President Walter Ruther, who brought 10 buses of multiracial union supporters. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP was originally scheduled to participate, but withdrew when he learned that deacons for defense would protect the marchers. As the march continued, people from across the nation joined. Marchers were fed along the way by black community supporters and the occasional sympathetic white group, such as the Holy Child Jesus Catholic Church in Canton, Mississippi. They stopped at Tougaloo College, a historic black college just north of Jackson, where they were entertained by James Brown, Dick Gregory, Sammy Davis Jr., Burt Lancaster, and Marlon Brando. A recovering James Meredith rejoined the march on June 25th, the day before the march entered Jackson. By that point, the marchers numbered over 15,000, making it the largest civil rights march in Mississippi history. The marchers arrived at the state capitol on June 26th. By then, they had registered over 4,000 new voters, particularly in the overwhelmingly black Mississippi Delta counties. Despite the success of the march against fear on its own terms, it is widely remembered today as the event that ushered in the Black Power Movement. On Thursday, June 16th, when the marchers reached Greenwood, Mississippi, simmering tensions between nonviolent advocates like Dr. King and those that challenged that philosophy like Stokely Carmichael finally became public when Carmichael, after being arrested by local police, rejoined the marchers. Taking the speaker's platform at a local park, Carmichael argued that black people must reject racial integration and develop their own political and economic resources without white assistance. He then called for black power. SNCC organizers had been using a longer version of the term black power for black people in Alabama. The nationally televised speech marked the beginning of a dramatically new phase of the struggle for racial justice. Interestingly, it is doubtful that Meredith, the man who started this march off, was sympathetic to that concept. Meredith didn't even associate himself with civil rights groups. During the last day of the march, he grumbled that he should have carried a gun, and in the ensuing weeks, he complained that the march lacked order imposed upon black Mississippians and endangered women and children. Meredith opposed white supremacy, but also espoused conservative ideas of self-reliance, morality, and manhood. He went on to work for arch-conservative North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms 
and then endorsed Louisiana politician, former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke. At 89, Meredith is still actively speaking out for what he believes. And that is our story for today. For the past is in the past, I'm Harry Richardson. With new social media apps coming out every single day, which ones can truly beat out their competitors and stand the test of time? This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen takes a look at MySpace, Tumblr, and Be Real to discuss why some of these platforms failed and why some may prevail. New social media platforms are emerging every day. But only a few apps can become popular, and even fewer can last for more than a couple of years. A new and upcoming social media app called Be Real recently started gaining popularity in the U.S., with its focus on letting users all post an unfiltered photo of what they are doing at a certain time of day with only two minutes to take the photo. Their purpose? Countering the excessive editing people put into posting on social media these days. With this current boom in popularity, it'll be interesting to see whether this app will become one of the next big social media platforms. This week on Bridging the Gap, we'll be talking about some of these social media sites that thrived for a moment in time. Now, a mere memory. The early 2000s was the era of MySpace. At least for a couple of years, it was the place to be. MySpace was a free website where users could create their own web profiles, customize their pages to their liking, and create blogs on things they were interested in. It was also a place to meet internet friends and connect with other users. The platform was extremely popular with musicians as they flooded to promote their music on their MySpace page. However, its downfall came when they tried to do a little too much. Former VP of MySpace's online marketing Sean Percival detailed in an interview with The Guardian how everything went down at MySpace. First, the website was unorganized in that it tried to do everything. Percival said, quote, MySpace's main failings at this point was bloat, with verticals covering celebrity, fashion, sport, and even books. Lesson learned, do one thing great, not do many things well. Or in our case, we were doing many things kind of crappy. End quote. Second, the company tried to expand to different countries, but the investments failed, causing them to lose copious amounts of money. Third, they tried to make up for lost revenue by inserting ads, but not tailoring any of it to its user experience. Lastly, Facebook started to emerge and was comparatively a much more organized social media platform, attracting all the users to use their site instead. At this point, MySpace had lost its competitive edge and faded out of the social scene. Next on the list is Tumblr. Tumblr was founded in 2007 with the intention of making social media blogging easy for users. It was easy to create blogs of photos, videos, or texts and customize your feed to your own liking. The follow function allowed users to find others with similar interests. The interface was simple and aesthetically pleasing, and its main audience were millennials and Gen Z, making Tumblr a hip place for users to form online communities. It was also known for its controversial but popular adult content. In 2013, Yahoo acquired Tumblr but then sold it off in 2016 after Tumblr failed to bring in advertisement revenue. Then in 2017, it was bought by Verizon. 
Later in 2018, it was sold to Automatic, the company that owns WordPress. As Tumblr got passed around by different companies, its market value kept falling. Moreover, they installed a ban on mature content, which caused many users to stop using the site and turn to Instagram instead. Surprisingly so, Tumblr has seemed to start regaining some of its popularity in the past year as Y2K culture started to trend again. The functions of Tumblr haven't changed as much, meaning it remains a place where users are simply blogging and reblogging about their interests. There are no influencers shoving brand deals at you, and no algorithms pushing content at you. The simplicity of the platform seems to be a breath of fresh air compared to the highly curated content on Instagram and Facebook. At the beginning of this feature, I talked about Be Real and how it's becoming the new social media platform that everyone is obsessed with. One of BeReal's main goals is for users to strip away the maintenance that comes with posting on Instagram and Facebook. BeReal sends out a notification to all of its users at a random time each day, prompting them to take a photo of what they are doing right now. All users are sent the notification at the same time, and you only get two minutes to take the photo and upload it, or else you will be marked late. Once uploaded, you can see photos from people you've added as friends and what they were doing at the time. Their focus on authenticity seems to be what is attracting users to the app. The main target audience at the moment seems to be mostly Gen Z users. From MySpace to Tumblr and now Be Real, we seem to never run out of different social media platforms to use. Financial reasons and marketing strategies seem to be one of the main culprits as to why platforms like MySpace and Tumblr didn't end up working. But the cultural shift in how we view social media is also crucial in whether a platform can succeed. Once a dying site, Tumblr perhaps can be saved by society's attitude change in what social media platforms should look like. Be Real seems to be testing out the waters based on this attitude change, and we'll see whether this new approach will stand the test of time. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yan. This week on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies on the small screen. One, We Feed People, is a documentary about the direct aid group World Central Kitchen and its celebrity chef founder, director Jose Andres. Another, Uncharted, is a fun escapist action adventure film that should be seen on a big screen. Hey, I'm Jose Andres. We're here with a simple mission to make sure that food is an agent of change. That was a clip from the trailer for the new documentary, We Feed People, directed by Ron Howard. In a compact 87 minutes, Howard tells the engrossing story of celebrity chef Jose Andres, who since 2010 has been traveling to disaster zones, natural and man-made, to, as the title says, feed people. Andres, a Washington, D.C.-based Spanish-born cook, was inspired to feed people in disaster regions in 2010 when he was vacationing in the Cayman Islands. When an earthquake devastated nearby Haiti, he felt he had to help. He went to Haiti and started working with local people and learned to cook beans and other staples the way they wanted them and not the way a chef would prepare them. He ran up his credit cards and worried about the financial costs later. In fact, one of the key drawbacks in the film is that we never quite figure out who's paying the bills here when he founds his charity, World Central Kitchen, WCK. What do they do to fundraise? how much gets eaten away in overhead, and so on. 
What we do see is a well-intentioned crew of volunteers that Andres tells us are setting up systems of food distribution to be carried on by locals after they leave. His group has reportedly provided hundreds of thousands of meals to disaster victims around the world. They have been on the scene in the aftermath of hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and man-made disasters. The documentary shows that sometimes they beat the Red Cross or other more established groups to the scene. One example came after the devastation of Hurricane Florence in Wilmington, North Carolina in 2018. Andres and company set up an emergency makeshift kitchen delivering thousands of hot meals when they learned the Red Cross is offline. The documentary gets in some deserved digs over the U.S. government failures to provide aid to Puerto Rico in 2018 after Hurricane Maria, including the infamous scene of then-President Trump throwing paper towels to needy people huddled in a large tent. In fact, the whole story of government malfeasance is far worse than touched on here. Bureaucratic government delays kept more than $20 billion in federal funds from helping people in Puerto Rico for months according to the government's own report issued last April by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Of course, government is the only agency that has the practical means to help vast amounts of people in need. We need to do all we can to see that government and international agencies like the UN work the way it should and that there is no need of private charities. But in the meantime, Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen are feeding Ukrainians in need. Now for a lighthearted adventure. I assume we're 50-50, right? 50-50? Who gets 10%? That's me being generous. Wow. That was a clip from the trailer for Uncharted, directed by Ruben Fletcher. If you've seen the previews, you get the basic idea. Two would-be adventurers, Tom Holland as Nathan Drake and Mark Wahlberg as Victor Sully Sullivan, go on a crazy treasure hunt, leading Drake in an almost Spider-Man-like situation, jumping from descending crate to descending crate, falling from a cargo plane in mid-flight. If you're thinking this sounds ridiculous and like a video game, you'd be right on both counts. The movie is based on a popular video game, usually not a good idea, and it's filled with physics defying stunts. Uncharted is also a lot of fun, something the Rotten Tomatoes critics, who give it a 41% don't get, but at 90%, the audience does. The key, just go for the fun. Action-adventure with likable characters like Drake and Sully, and a couple of good villains, the evil Santiago Moncado, Antonio Banderas, and his ruthless hired hand, Joe Tarii Gabriel. There's also a more ambiguous character, fellow treasure hunter, Chloe, Sophia Ali. Our story starts with the Drakes. Young Nathan lives at the orphanage with his older brother, Sam. Sam runs away from the law, but not before imparting two important things, a gold ring, a family heirloom, and the statement, don't forget, you're a Drake. Sam also passed on a yearning for adventure and a wild story about Magellan's secret gold stash. Flash forward to today, and Nate is working at a bar and stealing from wealthy patrons. Sully appears with an offer Nate can't refuse. A fun, entertaining ride. It's currently streaming, but see it on a big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters this evening were Reed Kamai and Catherine Garvins. A big welcome to new reporter Madeline Plattenberg on special assignment today. Special thanks to feature contributors Dylan Brogan, Brenda Conkle, Harry Richardson, and Teresa Yen. Special thanks to our on-air fundraisers Catherine and Helena White. Engineer Victor Calzoni got the news on the air. Nate Weggie helped produce this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. 
I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Up next is the most free form show on the radio dial, the Access Hour. Coming up after these announcements. Have a good night.